to Where Brains Meet Beauty, hosted by Jody Katz, founder and creative director of Base Beauty Creative Agency. Hi, Eleni. Hi, Jody. How are you? It's great to chat with you again. Yes. How's it going? It is going well. I'm excited for today's episode. It's with Daniel Hodgden. He's the CEO and founder of Vegamore. Are you familiar with this brand? I am familiar with the brand and I've actually met Daniel at another Beauty Connect event, actually, <laughs> through our partnership with Kasako. I think I can call it Vegamore or Vegamore or Vegamore. <laughs> I think he gave me permission to mispronounce it. Okay, great. That's helpful. <laughs> so fun fact about Daniel, he's basically lived on like every single continent and he's lived in so many different countries since he was a little kid. So a very, very well-traveled human. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. I love to travel. That would be a dream. Do you have any upcoming trips? Upcoming, nothing that big, but I was recently just in Switzerland and Paris with my two sisters and it was amazing. I've never been to Switzerland before and I was literally blown away by the beauty. It feels like you're watching a Disney movie, like the mountains, the the sky, the, the air that you're breathing. It's just gorgeous. Well, that's actually an incredible segue to Dan's life because I'm sure Switzerland is just like pure natural beauty and the environment is probably very much protected there. Yes. And that's actually Daniel's main passion is the environment. While he runs a very successful beauty business, his life and his world is completely dedicated to environmentalism. That is amazing. I mean, talk about a brand that really lives by a, a mission that consumers can get behind. This is such a space people are really, I mean, we hope as, as an agency, we're always trying to work with clients who are in this space and, and taking steps in that direction to protect the earth. So that's amazing. Yeah, he has really incredible stories. So I want spoil them. I want everyone to listen in his voice, but amazing stories about being on the front lines in many parts of the world to make sure that our earth is treated sustainably, that workers are given fair wages, that opportunities are both healthy for the environment and the people around them. And he's literally a man on the mission. When I did my intake call with him, he was flying off to you know a faraway place to install a new program in a community that's really going to save lives. So a very, very fascinating guy and a fascinating cause. And we also did, for our fans who watch our lives on Instagram, a really fun game with him for our Instagram after show. Oh, I'm excited to watch that. Amazing. Well, I, this is a term that I feel like we use a lot at Base Beauty and in the marketing industry. He sounds like an innovator for sure. So excited to listen to that episode. Should we get to it? Let's do it. Okay. This is episode 229, Daniel Hodgson, CEO and founder of Vegamore. Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty. We are career journey podcast talking about what it's like to define success and reach for it in the beauty and wellness industries. Today we have Dan Hodgden, CEO and founder of Vegamore. Dan created Vegamore with a comprehensive approach to hair health that combines the power of nature with cutting edge science. His 100% vegan brand combines hair wellness and sustainability practices, showing what's good for the planet is good for us. I'm excited to dive into the conversation about his career journey and environmental efforts, and this is episode 229. Wow. Hi, Dan. Hey there. How are you? Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty. Thanks for having me. So in our um, intake hall where I got to learn a little bit about you, I learned that you have a bunch of homes in a bunch of places in the world. So where are you right now? I'm in LA. Where it's, in LA. It feels like I'm like on the East Coast in the wintertime, it's, or Seattle, actually. This has been nonstop rain for, for weeks and weeks. So I don't know. Something's happening. <laughs> 
Well, we know what that something is, and we're going to actually talk about it. Mm. Okay. So, uh, you know, this is a career journey show, and I'm fascinated by um, how people just, like, navigate the world, you know, because it's kind of messy in my head, you know, sometimes as an entrepreneur myself, and, you know, I... I like to think of myself as being super creative, but sometimes that means the thoughts in my head, I'm, I'm alone with them, <laughs> you know, which is a scary place. Uh-huh. So I love hearing other people's stories. It's therapeutic for me. So let's go way back in time, Dan, to like your 10, 11-year-old self. What do you want to be when you grow up? I wanted to be, first I wanted to be a paleontologist, and then I got kind of tired of dinosaurs, and I wanted to be like a, a, a an anthropologist, archaeologist, like an Indiana Jones, like, you know, uncovering some ancient civilizations and, 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 and discovering new worlds. Dan, I wanted to be the same. Oh, really? <laughs> I had a first grade teacher who went on, a, I guess, a summer vacation to Egypt, and she brought back, you know, her souvenirs and, you know, whatever else she collected, and she told us the stories of her journey, and I was hooked. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, me, I, I always thought, you know, I think Indiana Jones was probably a part of that, you know. But, but, um, you know, it, looking at dinosaur bones was interesting uh, from, you know, at, at a really young age. But then there was like, what do they do? What kind of what kind of infrastructures do they build? That that was the thing that was really interesting. How do these people, back with the limited resources and tools, how do they create like you know um, ecosystems or or, or 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 agriculture or like you know systems of government and like the whole like preservation of property and laws and so, it's just you know and technology and industrial revolution i always how did you do that with what little things they had and that was always like fascinating to me and and like if if i was somehow transported back in time with the knowledge that i have that was always a game used to play with myself like what advantages what could i do to even prove that I was in the future like you know I, one of my favorite books growing up as a kid was a uh, connecticut yankee in king author's court it's a book by um you know samuel clemens and and uh mark twain and and um, it's about this very but this guy was an inventor. He went back to medieval times and, and was able to create like electricity and all these cool things. And so I don't know. Just it's I love the idea of being able to go back and see how people did things. I guess I like and I also like taking things apart and seeing how they work. And then and then trying to figure out how to like put them back together again and, and maybe even make them a little better. And I think that's sort of been kind of my journey my entire life. Usually breaking more things that I fix though. Sadly. <laughs> Let's go back to the dream number one, paleontologist. Mm. What was your favorite dinosaur? Oh, I think T-Rex, of course. It was, you know, as a, as a young boy, <laughs> for sure. It, it, there was a limited amount of, of information that, I mean, it, even if you learn as much as you can about dinosaurs, the pecking order, and, and like these were the apex predators, predators and, and at the top of the food chain. You know, for me, it's just like, you know, but like, how did they get there? And then like, what happened afterwards? And then how did we get here? And, and what was that exchange that, that happened when they were here? And then suddenly they're not. And then people are the dominant, are the apex predators, I guess, if you will, of, of, of the of the planet. So I don't know. It's a, it's, it, it, I also have ADHD, which is probably evident from the few minutes we've been talking together. And I got to go all around the, the place. And, and that's also, sometimes I think that could be a, a a blessing and a curse, you know, lots of ideas and, and be able to see things very quickly sometimes and, and see things from a different perspective than, than maybe a straight linear approach, but also can be, you can be distracted easily as well. So the important thing for me was to find something that you're passionate about. And so like, for example, I was totally interested in, in paleontology as a kid, but then I kind of, I kind of like milked all of that, that I, you know, that I knew everything there was about dinosaurs, but I kind of like my interest level, I, I shifted something else. And then like, Oh, now I'm all into that and totally forget about this thing. And so 
for me, it's been really important. People ask me, you know, for career advice. I'm always like, the thing that you got to do, make sure that whatever it is you're doing, that you're passionate about it, that you love it. Because as long as you love it, it won't feel like you're actually working and, you know, and the, and you'll be able to stay engaged and focused. And maybe people will have as much trouble focusing as I do. But like, you know, when I'm, when I'm into something, I'm all in. So let's go back to archaeology. Have you ever been on a dig or been exposed to any of this in real life? Actually, when I was in college, I, I, I signed up to go on this uh, field trip to or this um, archaeological dig at the, I guess, the trash cans where, where Thomas Jefferson used to dump all his waste, you know, in, at Monticello. And so, and, you know, and, and we took all these, you know, pre-courses on it and had the grids and the toothbrushes and the like. And then I realized at that time, I was like, oh, this is a really slow process that's probably beyond my attention span to be able to pay that much attention to the fine detail. I mean, I, I have like so much respect and, and admiration for the people that do, but like, you know, again, it wasn't, I, I think my vision of it was like a rather stupid, like Indiana Jones kind of thing. You need to go in and tear things up and pull things out of walls and, you know, run from traps. But yeah, I, I, I realized kind of at that time that, yeah, you need to have, like steady hands, attention span that can like spend for hours just like, you know, being very, very careful. And I'm, I'm, I'm a little like, I just want to get in there and, and get into it, you know? On some summer vacation, I don't remember which one, we took the kids to Monticello. We think yeah. Monticello, right? We loved Italy and they were not impressed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I really? know that a lot of elementary school kids would find it fascinating, but I did. I loved it. That's so cool that you had that opportunity to dig around and, you know. Did you, I mean, like the clocks that he made and the and the, the multiple signals, all his inventions were so, again, that was the whole thing. It was so amazing. Like he was this man, you know, and there was, there was a, a dark side, of course, but like that this, this guy could come up with all these amazing inventions and, and had the time to really, you know, get into like hybrid plants and, 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 um, and creating different hybrids and, and different species and, 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 and developing different strains and things like that while, you know, also developing all these different kinds of devices that made the technological advances, you know, in and around the home as well. Uh, I always thought, and then had time to play the violin, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think um, at the time, if you said the word museum to the kids, they were they were done, you know, like, leave me alone. Maybe they'd find it more interesting now they're a little older. Okay, so let's talk about your peripatetic, right? I would say as a child, right? You lived a lot of places, you had a lot of experiences. Um, in your teens, you spent summers on a farm in Vermont, and you described the farm as pretty rustic. So tell us about those experiences. Yeah, so my, my father comes from a long line of dairy farmers in New England, and, and so um, you know he, he, he likes to say he's the only one in his family that escaped, and he did that by you know, running away and joining the Navy when he was 17. He went on to become an engineer, and we moved all around the world because of his work. But he was, you know, very conservative, very traditional New England, you know, think Petridge Farm kind of thing. And so, but, you know, and everything they they, they consumed or, or used was either grew or raised themselves. And, you know, so if you didn't have a good season, like for the vegetables, which were all canned and the potatoes were put in the cellar, like that lasted, you had the last days of the winter, right? And so, like, my father wanted me when you live overseas when you're a kid you can't even get a paper route like you can't they don't allow you to work and so my dad's like i don't want my kid to grow up and be the spoiled brat so like his his uh thing was to send me back to summer camp which was on first at my grandparents farm and then it would be one of my uncles or, uh, you know um or aunt and um and i would be kind of like farmed out and, and, and used as manual labor <laughs> as much as a, you know as i got bigger i i was able to do more more work and, and it was less babysitting on their part 
But um, yeah, that was, that was, it really, I mean, you know, growing up in cities as I did, you know, internationally too, like, you know, I had no idea like where vegetables came, everything came from the store, everything was out of the fridge. And so like seeing how, oh, you have to plant a seed and you actually, if you want good stuff next year, you have to get the best seeds from this harvest and then like save them and, and plant them in the right place and can't place, plant the same thing in the same place every year because you have to rotate crops. And, and But it was, it was, um, yeah, it was very uh, rustic, but also idyllic, you know, everything was simple. And this was like before the internet and we didn't have like satellite TV or cable TV. I'm, I'm an old guy. And, um, but it was really this, uh, a way to disconnect and, 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 but also connect with like with the earth and with the way things actually slowing everything down from like a city like Bangkok to like rural Vermont where like time is kind of be stands still and we're still using some of the same equipment, you know, tilling equipment, uh, 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 planting equipment that we used a century ago in the family, you know, and same techniques and traditions and, and things like that. So it was, it's a real, um, I don't know, it's also a way to unplug and, 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 and really connect with what I think is today. The more important is this, our connection with, with nature, with the planet. Dan, you mentioned a few places that you lived. Tell us all the places. You know, can you go down the list with us? Yeah, sure. I, I lived in um, lived in the, in the Middle East for a while, in the Saudi Arabia. I lived in um, Thailand, Singapore, Indonesia. Um, uh, I was in Bali. I lived in, in, in Europe. I've, um, but I think by the time I was... I was 17. I counted once. And this is a recollections of teenagers. They may be somewhat hyperbolic, but I think I lived in like over 20 places. We moved around a lot because my dad was always on a post. And then like that post van, we'd be like living in a couple of different places in between the next assignment kind of thing. It was kind of like the life of an army brat, but without the the military. So um, these family farms of Vermont do any of them remain? Yes, absolutely. In fact, we still grow hemp on, on my cousin's farm, which was my uncle's farm, which is the one that I, she actually, my, my cousin Carol, she used to change my diapers when I was a, a, a wee lad. Um, but yeah, so we, we that she inherited Uncle Bob's farm, uh, or, or her part of it, and, and we grow hemp there um, for our, our the products that we have CBD in. So you had a lot of, um, I guess, growth opportunities as a kid traveling all over the place, living everywhere, seeing all these different cultures. You had summers on the farm. Um, by the time it was, you know, bound for college, did you have a career in mind? Yeah. I, I, I At first, I thought everyone said, you got to go into business, business. I mean, that was the thing when I was a kid. Like, you got to go be a businessman. I didn't even know what a businessman was. But but the classes that I started, I think that's what I, I, my major was when I first enrolled because I just did what they told me to do. Um, but even though it's far more interested in art and far more interested in history, but what I really like kind of got turned on to was like, you know, taking like biology and, and, and physiology and, and, and chemistry class. I, I gravitated towards, towards those classes and then I changed my major, um, you know, after my freshman year to, to, to biology and with a minor in philosophy. So, you know, because I like to, I get distracted a lot. <laughs> and walking out of school. What was that first job? You know what? Here's the thing. First of all, I didn't finish school because I was I had started. I, um, I kind of, I ended up like basically having to support myself um, and and pay my way through school. And, and in order to do that, I started a business, and it was an import export business. It was my first company, and so um, it, it it and that's kind of how I that's how I paid my way through school. And so like I and and until. 
until very recently for a brief moment where I worked, you know, for a company that was owned by John Paul DeJoria um, for like, I think I worked for like 16 months. Uh, I've never ever had a job, really. I've always just kind of hustled and did my own thing and, and had my own businesses, many of which have like failed miserably. Some of them had like, you know, various levels of success, which kind of like let me, oh, this is not a bad thing. But I, I do kind of feel like that whole experience from the time I was 17 to, to today or to when I started Vigmore, for example, was sort of like a like a training ground, you know, a university of life, if you will. That, and I feel like I sort of like forced gumped my way through all these different things, which all led to this one big Vegamore beast that, that, that we're working with that I'm on today. Okay. So Dan, I want to switch gears a little bit to this world of fair trade. And you touched on a little bit about your um, partnership with a very famous hair person. You have a commitment to building fair trade partnerships in the world. What does this mean? And when did this start? And how does this work? It started. So my wife, her side of the family, her father and, and every, all the relatives and family friends all are in, you know, my father is like, you know, engineering and, and petrochemicals. Her side's all agency for international development, World Wildlife Foundation, you know, uh, UNESCO, those kind of NGOs. And so I was always fascinated by by the work that they did all over the world, helping, you know, developing countries with like, you know, things like to creating eco-friendly, sustainable jobs and stuff like that through public-private partnerships or, or sometimes just through, you know, government-funded NGOs. I, I started, I was asked by a friend because of my, you know, living experiences, you know, farming and agriculture to, to help set up a, a supply chain in, in Southeast Asia for, you know, this is back in 2006. And I kind of like got from behind the computer because I was just like coding at the time and, and building like payment gateways and things like that. I, I was like, oh, this is great. I get to go back out in the field. I get to kind of like, you know, learn to use some of the stuff that I, I grew up like, you know, from experiences I had as a, growing up as a child and, and working with someone on the farm. And I helped set up like, you know, stable su- supply chains for, they were having issues with like some ingredients were behaving differently from one source than another source in their formulations. This is back when Clean Beauty was first just kind of getting off, off the ground. And, um, but, but, you know, and I saw the impact that it had in being able to, like, create, like, green, eco-friendly job opportunities for people that were, like, that, that didn't have much of another opportunity, you know, and, and where they were living, um, you know, at that time in Southeast Asia. Um, and so I just, that kind of part of me, it's already kind of clicked. I think, wow, there's, there's something here, right? Um, fast forward to, you know, 2012, 2013, and I'm, I'm trying to find the source of marula oil for, for John Paul DeJoria because he's launching this new, this hairline that inclu- included that. And, um, and, and I, I, I knew where it came from roughly, and, 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 but it was, it was the best place to source it is like Southern Africa, and it's also available in Madagascar. But like, but by going out there in the field and and then and then finding out where it's at, what's the tradition of harvesting it, and 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 that there was no large supply chain, it's so labor intensive, and no one really had put together a system for collecting it or, and, and pressing it, and then we had to come up with all filtration system, everything, but it hadn't been done before. Now. And I just saw like that it, it could incorporate, it could you know, it, we could benefit thousands of people. But right now, for example, we work with about five thousand women in, in the fair trade partnership. What that means, fair trade, to, to me, and there's lot, there are various definitions. There's you know a lot of people have adopted it as like you know and have different definitions. But it's 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 paying a fair living wage, you know, and I think above and beyond that, 
um, and, and, and letting people participate in the success of, 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 your, of what your business is, right? And so I look at that. How do we pay like well above whatever the, the minimum wage is? What's a living wage? How do we make it sustainable? And, and, and how do we do it so that with biodiversity in mind, making sure that we're creating something that is sustainable, that's, that's going to help the earth and not like, you know, hurt the earth. And so we set up these, these with all of our suppliers. We make sure if, if we either providing the we're actually either the producers or our partner company is the producer of the raw materials that we're using in, in many of our formulations, or if we are sourcing from other people that produce things that we don't have access to, it's really important for us that they incorporate the same level of transparency in their, their you know, it's making sure that it's wild harvest and it's not causing any harm to the people or the planet, that there is a fair and equitable exchange for the resources that, 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 that they're getting. And, and, and that there's full visibility into that supply chain so that we can make sure in our, either in our own audits or they're externally audited that, 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 that that's being conducted, the business is being conducted fairly and that all people are benefiting from that. And for us, we take it to that, the next level where we, we then reinvest like a portion of the proceeds, the profits back into those communities to help with things that, that, that they may not have access to immediately, but, but, but to have expressed an interest in wanting, like, you know, HIV awareness, you know, education, uh, literacy programs. Um, there's these wonderful, um, uh, that just came back from a trip and, and we we're working with, uh, people in the, in the, in the areas of communities that we collect our Marula kernels from. There's this amazing daycare center that like is pretty much the only source of, uh, a, a solid mill for 650 kids a day. Um, and so, but they had this amazing program before COVID that had like a, a garden that provided vegetables and everything for, for the children all year round, plus a tilapia pond. But because of global warming, like those, they don't have access to water. So like we've, we've commissioned a study and we found out, oh, we can dig a well, a borehole. It's going to cost like $15,000, but it's going to make it completely, it's going to revitalize that garden and that tilapia pond program. So these kids have protein and vegetables in their diet for, you know, for an extenuating period of time. And so those are the kind of things, and, you know, and that benefits everyone because, you know, those people are connected to us and in, in, in that we are resourcing raw materials from that area. And we want to make sure that if we're, if we're taking something, we're not just paying for the, paying for it as a fair exchange for the for actual commodity, but also reinvesting in those communities because we feel that a rising tide should lift all ships. And, and I guess that's kind of how I think about it. It's not an official, like, you know, uh, UN-backed, you know, guideline, but it's, it's, it just feels like, for me, it's just like, it feels like that's what we should do because we can and, and we're in the beauty business. The markups are, are considerable. And so, like, so why can't we put that money back in the communities that are enabling us to produce these amazing products that we're, that we're able to share with the rest of the world? So is your work with Vegamore an attempt to grow, to have more resources to grow these other programs? Is it sort of like a catalyst? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it was kind of, it was actually the reason why I started Vegamore. Vegamore was just a, it was really a case study to demonstrate because before I was, you know, I'd set up this amazing supply chain for all these amazing botanical oils that, that, you know, that, that are, had never really been like, been able to produce that at a large scale sustainably and there's also a whole filtration process which i won't go into that had to be engineered and made so that it didn't involve heat or pressure or solvents or detergents and and, and wasn't didn't require a lot of energy to, to clean these oils so that they maintain the integrity of what made them so amazing as a cosmetic or beauty oil in the first place i in trying to create more opportunities i was selling the raw materials to 
you know, to big strategics, to, you know, it's Hankel, Procter & Gamble, et cetera. And what I would find was that, that people would be using them, but like there was a lot of, sometimes as marketing claims, not those people, but, but some of the people that were like, what would, I was like, if you use these at, at the right percentages and made them bioavailable, they actually have these benefits that you can see with your eyes that people will be, but a, a lot of people weren't really, that's not the way everyone else formulates. And so I thought, well, look, I'm going to show, because I, if I can show that you can be profitable and by formulating it, the right percentages and then actually making them bioavailable and people will be so happy with the results, they'll come back and purchase again, even if it might be a little more expensive than, than you know, that, that it would be worth it. And so that's what I started thinking more. It's a kind of, it's a proof case thinking that if I could show people that, they would go and formulate the same way it would change. It was a little bit ridiculous because this goes to show my naivete and lack of experience. But, you know, but what it has done, I mean, then Vegamore took off and it's become what it is today, which is kind of cool because now we have a platform that's even bigger than what I was trying to before, which that was just like, you know, industry facing. And, and hopefully that we can, we can be a, play a part in helping drive the other people that are in the beauty business to, to formulate in similar ways. Be mindful of like where they're sourcing your ingredients from to, to maybe even have like a social impact program in mind for that. But also to, to formulate, knowing that, you know, if we do it right, we can actually, these, these products can have a, a significant impact and, and help people feel better about themselves because their skin's better, their hair's better, whatever. Okay. I think I've been using my New Jersey accent to say the name of your brand wrong. <laughs> so you're saying Vegamore. Vegamore, yeah. Uh-huh. And I said Vegamore. Does that happen a lot? It, you know what? It's all good. You say potato, I say potato. It's like, it's, it's called, it's, it's, yeah, it's Vegamore. I think if we put a little accent they do over the E, I, 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 I'm told like, I feel that would make it very clear to everyone, but my marketing team tells me that that doesn't, it wouldn't no, help at all. That wouldn't help me. I'd probably still put my jersey into it. Um, okay, my last question. You've mentioned a few times that, you know, you um, have your eye on something, you put your mind to it, and then you're like, ah, eh, this isn't for me, and you move on. So I'm wondering how that impacts your management, your leadership style, right? You have a ship to keep floating, right, and to yeah. point in a direction. Um, I totally get you about, like, the shiny things. I'm the same sort of way I have. Um, I think my brain works a lot faster, and a lot of my team members are like, what are you, <laughs> what are you saying? I'm like, it makes so much sense, right? So I kind of feel like we're probably pretty similar that way. I'm curious, how do you lead to get the job done, but also like keep room in your pockets and in your brain for these um, like next big ideas. I mean, like I said, if I'm passionate about something, which Vegamore, I'm just so passionate about not only what I think in terms of we've done and changed the game in terms of like creating a new category and, and, and changing the way people think about hair and your hair care and your hair health. It's it, it getting a message out and being able to have like and use the resources from the success of that to, to reinvest back in these communities, which is why I started in the first place. I feel that I'm singularly focused. I, I, I like to think that I'm able to pivot when when I need to. As you get bigger, as, as you become more successful, that you know, being a little like jet ski that can turn around a dime becomes kind of like an oil tanker, and it takes like what maybe ten miles to turn around, you know. And I am I am cognizant of that. I try to be very, you know. I, I've been told that you know people like me, like we work maybe even you, like with, with ADD. We have like Ferrari brains, but bicycle brakes. <laughs> so, so that the, it, and I and I can see how it can be totally frustrating for 
it, it sometimes it feels like we're we're pivoting. I, I like to say it, but I'm never going in the other direction. It's just kind of it's still directionally in the same way. It just might we might have to alter course a little bit. And fortunately, I'm blessed with a team that is is nimble and also likes a, a challenge it, and also likes to like you know think things all the way through and also know that nothing's so precious. Like if it's if we're holding onto something that's a bad idea. That seemed like a good idea. It's better to let it go and take the next right indicated action based on the data that we have. I mean, I like to think that everything we do is data driven. We're kind of like, that's my jam. I, I like to know. I, I'm not a big fan of opinions. I like to have formed opinions, uh, opinions based on like the pertinent data, the relevant data that comes in. But yeah, it's it's. It's a little erratic, and, and as we get larger, I need to. But but I think we we have a pretty our a, a purpose, and it has never changed. The mission has never changed. Uh, sometimes the way to get there and achieve the goal is has been. You know, of course, I want to try everything, but now I see that we can't try everything as we become larger. We have to become more singly focused, and and I have to you know rely. I can't control everything. I have to like delegate and, and let the subject matter experts that we brought on board to you know to, to take the business to the next level and let them do their jobs. But just try to be my job is to try to be there to support them and give them the tools they need to be successful. Dan, I, I wonder if you're the same. I'm challenged by knowing what the end goal is and having to be patient to get there. I call it limbo. Like I know where I, yeah. where I need to be. I know what, what needs to be done, but like sometimes there's a process. There's, you know, only 24 hours in a day, all this stuff is limbo. Do you feel challenged by that? Yes. You know, when I see something very clearly, it's like, I, I kind of try to explain to people, it's like being on a bullet train and like you, you get to the end really quick, like in a second, a microsecond, and you see, you see the scenery out the windows. You know, there was a car there, there was a farm here, there was a, a lake there. But but then they try to go back and unpack it and explain it. To it. And it's like, oh, it's like very excruciatingly painful. And, and, and sometimes I'm afraid, what if I can't remember all the information that got me there? I think as I get older, I become more and more confident or I, I trust by the thing that I saw. Because before I'd be like, well, how could I know this? Because I haven't done all the math. I can't show the work, right? But I, And I think what you're talking about is like, seeing the end very quickly and going, oh, this is what we need, and, and knowing all the steps you need to get there. But like, unfortunately, there's only 24 hours in a day, and there's only so much stuff that people can do as humans, and, and humans should have time for other things besides work. And I've been told many times that I, I, I get too far ahead, and, and we need to like make time for you know, for everything to get caught up to it. And it's just, it's just one of those things you just have to accept, but it does leave me time breaks where I can like, Oh, well, while everyone's waiting to catch up on this, I can go focus on this thing and do a little bit of that. And actually too, taking my mind off the primary objective kind of like allows space for it to percolate. And then while I'm working on something else, I'm like, Oh, this is how we should solve that. You know, it's suddenly it's something that was maybe, a, a, a puzzle or enigma suddenly becomes very clear to me by, by, by taking the focus off it for a moment or two. So I do think that having multiple interests can be beneficial if you can be disciplined about it and, and not get, you know, you can become too distracted and, and take your eye off the prize. I love that. Does that well, make sense? Yes, for sure. It's super helpful for me to hear that. What's your one piece of advice you have for managing stress? Ah, can I give two pieces of advice? Two pieces sure. of advice would be one, make sure that you're getting at least eight hours of sleep a day. It's the biggest game changer. It makes it, that's what we do. Our body repairs itself, restores itself. Our brain gets reset, everything. 
It's the single most important thing you do for your health and for your management of stress that we have today, better than your medication, better than anything. Second thing, if stress is an issue, um, as it, as it, I mean, it's easy to be stressed as well, but like a meditation practice is, has been a game changer for me. Um, if you could, we don't think we have the time to do it, even if it's just five minutes a day, even if it's just a single breath, like that's all you have is that one moment. Like, and it sounds kind of like, you know, woo-woo, but it, it, there's this, the, the scientific studies from Harvard to Princeton to like University of Japan. I mean, it, it, there's no denying the benefit of, of meditation and lowering stress levels, lowering cortisol levels. Uh, also helps by in doing that helps you be able to get the sleep that you need to, to be able to deal with a stressful day, you know, going forward. So um, this is a hair question. Mm. The second question for you. What are some things that people don't know that have an effect on the on their hair? Here's something that your scalp is the skin on your scalp is four times more absorbent than the skin on the, any part of your, other part of your body. So therefore, you know, we put all this care into like you know eating organically great produce, uh, this clean skincare, clean color cosmetics, and yet we just pour these chemicals. We dye our hair, we bleach it, we you know we put stuff in to make it stay up or stay down, to straighten it, to curl it, and this all these things go into our bloodstream from our very very highly absorbent scalp. So like, be mindful of everything that you put on top of this thing here because this is the most absorbent part of your body and all that stuff's coming into your into your system i did not know that about my scalp well, there you go <laughs> yeah what are your plans for earth day oh earth day so we have this amazing program that we've that we're kicking off in in, in namibia it's a clean stove program there's this amazing so people might not know this but in, in, in africa they cook in, a lot of people cook in open cooking fires and these fires emit a lot of like smoke and they're not efficient so you one they they cause you uh for in the area that we're focusing this pilot on, uh, each family consumes about 10,000 pounds of firewood a year. So there's rapid, rapid like deforestation that goes on. These emit like four to five tons of like you know carbon emissions into the area. But not only that, the respiratory illnesses that it causes that subsequently can lead to death. They cause 10 times more death in open fires, cooking fires in Africa. Cause 10 times more deaths there than malaria. TB or HIV AIDS combined. It's huge number. And, you know, the World Health Organization does like cook with natural gas, but that's not an option for it. People don't have that access to that. We have this great program that we're kicking off with these um, stoves by this amazing engineer in, in the Netherlands who invented it. It's, it's it actually, um, you're able to fuel it with like marula husk that when we, and we have a limitless supply of that. So we don't have to use any deforestation tree, but the, the, it's just in the shells, the nuts that we crack for marula. They can actually, you can boil water in five minutes with this it, 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 and it burns clean and it, it, there's no need for, and, it, and it emits th uh, four times, four tons less. Uh, carbon emissions into into the atmosphere each year. So it's a it's an amazing program uh, that we're that we're launching uh, next month, and that's and we're going to raise a lot of awareness around that because we would actually raise uh, awareness so we can get other beauty brands in to help like contribute to sponsor stoves for families so that we can like scale the program even larger so we can be you know tens of thousands of these things throughout the community save hundreds of thousands of lives each year and like tons and tons of like um, you know carbon emissions from going to the air and and stopping deforestation altogether so that's what i'm doing for earth day <laughs> yeah that's amazing how can businesses contribute to this you said you would like other brands to get on board to um, donate funds to raise money for the stoves 
Yeah, well, or or, or sponsored like, uh, one of these programs. We also have a tree planting program. We were like some like other like um, gardens of hope program. So like, reach out to me. You know, Dan at Vegamore.com. And if, if you're a beauty brand and, you, and you're interested, in it, I can show you share information about the program that we're setting up. And and and, and if people maybe even organize a trip over there so people can see the impact that it has. Um, I, I just think you know the more the merrier I and mean, this is what this is the opportunity that I mean, this is the reason why i did vega more in the first place was to try to make to have an impact on the on the world and the environment in, in a positive way and, and 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 we can we can we can be successful beauty brands we can also give back to the communities that are you know partially responsible that for us having the ability to make the products that we make today in a clean way. I love this. Well, okay. If you want to contribute or find out how to contribute, message down over email. It is definitely the um, the more the better. We are not competitors in this in this like you know in helping people live better, right? Not um, at all. Dan, this is so fun. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your wisdom. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like this episode, please rate and review. As always, make sure you are following us on your favorite podcast platform and Instagram to stay up to date on upcoming episodes and all the fun we have along the way. Thanks for joining us. Bye, Dan. Thank you. Thanks, Jerry. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Where Brains Meet Beauty with Jody Katz. Tune in again for more authentic conversations with beauty leaders.